A few months ago, a young person confided in me that one of her friends was a pagan. I don't recall being caught off guard in that moment. With every generation, our society has become progressively less tethered to belief in God, and paganism is the next station on the Romans 1 train. But the experience left me wondering how many young people under the age of 30, I'm not asking this, I'm just wondering out loud, how many people under the age of 30 have an acquaintance or two who claim to be pagan? Which led me to another question. What drew the pagans and the unbelievers to Christianity in the first place? If we're looking at a society that is, become, that is going to become more and more pagan in its outlook, it seems to me like this is probably a place we need to spend some time preparing ourselves to share the gospel. Because the new atheist movement gained steam at the turn of the century, a lot of my attention has been diverted to Paul's reasoning with the Lystrans in Acts chapter 14 and his speech to the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. In both passages, Paul draws on evidence in creation that points to God's existence. This is how Paul talked to people who did not believe in God. And it stands to reason that these examples should then guide our attempts to reason with an unbeliever. Focusing on the evidence of design and creation is certainly a valid and a worthwhile approach with much relevance as we confront a skeptical culture. But I thought again about that original question. And I wondered, is there more? Is there something I'm overlooking? In my attempt to meet the challenges of a skeptical age, had I focused on a single element, proving the existence of God through creation, and thereby overlooked something else that might help bring someone to Christ. So I sent Mark the title of this lesson, thinking I knew where this was going to end up, and admittedly in the preparation it took some turns that I was not expecting. But I think I've landed on a couple of incentives in the gospel that played a bigger role in the conversion of pagans than I had previously considered. But before I get to those reasons, I just want to spend a few minutes thinking about why the pagans resisted the gospel in the first century. The exclusive claims of Christianity slowed down the spread of Christianity. For centuries, the Greek and Roman world had absorbed cultures that stretched from Western Europe to India, from England to North Africa. And for that reason, the Gentile world was accustomed to a diversity of religions and gods. The traditional Roman religion with Caesar as its head was called religio by the Romans, and it was the state religion. But the Romans also tolerated what they called superstitio, or private religion. Because the Roman world was filled with a myriad of religions practiced privately by individuals, private beliefs were tolerated so long as they did not interfere with one's participation in the state religion. Because the empire was rich with a diverse array of religions, folks, especially those who lived in the city, folks were favorably disposed to hearing about new gods. When Paul preached foreign gods in the Athenian marketplace, at least they thought they were foreign gods, people were curious about this new doctrine concerning Jesus 
and the resurrection. They thought the resurrection was a god as well. And though Luke highlights the curiosity of the Athenians in that passage, that was the prevailing attitude in Greek and Roman society. It was a pluralistic society. So new gods and new religions interested people. But should one's private religion usurp the place of the state religion, there would be trouble. This is what happened to Paul and Silas in the city of Philippi. They were accused by citizens of Philippi of teaching customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Acts chapter 16, verse 21. That Christianity sought to supplant the traditional religion of Rome made it highly unfavorable, very unpopular. Roman culture also perceived Christianity to be an antagonistic religion. As their empires incorporated more and more of the ancient world, Greek and Roman cultures grew accustomed to gods and goddesses who were held to be soul and unique. A god envisioned as a monarch enthroned on high with angels and other supernatural beings to do his work. This was familiar to that world. It was familiar to the Greek and Roman cultures. But what troubled them about Christianity was its god who demanded absolute allegiance and who pledged to destroy all those who refused to believe in him in a fiery display of divine wrath. This turned them off. The followers of this vengeful God then drew lines in the sand when it came to their social interactions with neighbors, non-believers. Christians avoided on religious grounds those occasions when their neighbors gathered for a good time in private or community celebrations. Christians didn't marry non-Christians. They were taught this in scriptures like 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning around verse 14. They viewed their neighbors as children of wrath. So to a religiously tolerant culture, such a God and the people who followed him were deemed unnecessarily hostile And the Christian faith was polarizing. But the biggest impediment to the widespread acceptance of the Christian faith lay at the very heart of the gospel itself. It wasn't the exclusive claims of Christianity that held people back. It was also the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that caused people to resist the good news. From the 3rd century B.C. onward, the Latin word crux was a vulgar taunt among the lower classes. It was found on the lips of slaves and prostitutes in the plays and literary works of the ancient world. Death by crucifixion was a demonstration of servility, of weakness, of inferiority, of guilt. The thought of crucifixion sickened most people. The Roman world was largely unanimous. The crucifixion was a horrific and disgusting business. Crucifixion was widespread and frequent, but the cultured world, the cultured literary world, wanted nothing to do with it, and as a rule, kept quiet about it. Cicero called it that plague. No ancient writer wanted to dwell too long on this cruel procedure, and few writers spent any time recording its horrors. The gospel account of Jesus' crucifixion contains some of the most vivid depictions in the ancient world. 
And the reason is because most people just didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to think about it. They didn't want to be associated with it. For that reason, they resisted the idea of a crucified Savior. Their aversion was further compounded by the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. Most Romans struggled to accept that the Son of God could suffer the death of a thief or a slave. And exposing God incarnate to the suffering and shame of the cross only increased the revulsion that most Gentiles held for Christianity. There's a well-known ancient caricature near the Circus Maximus in Rome that depicts a human body hanging on a cross with a donkey's head placed on top. And it carries the inscription, Alexa Menos worships God. That's what they thought of the crucified Son of God. A crucified Son of God led critics like Celsus, the Greek physician, to conclude that though Christians presented Jesus as if he were a great God, whereas he was not so much an ordinary one, or even a daemon. When Tacitus recounted the crucifixion of Jesus at the hands of Pontius Pilate, the Roman historian referred to Christianity as a pernicious superstition. He accused Jesus of instigating an evil which spread all too quickly to Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world need to become popular. Christianity to Tacitus and to much of that world was a malicious, hideous, and shameful religion. Paul's words to the Corinthians suggest that that church knew this all too well. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Like Philippi, Corinth was a Roman colony, a Rome away from Rome. Corinth citizens held Roman culture, traditions, and religions sacrosanct. And notice in that passage, Paul says it is the message of the cross, the message of Christ crucified. This is what triggered the broad rejection of the gospel. And the claim that he rose bodily from the dead just only exacerbated the gospel's unattractiveness. When Paul spoke to the Areopagus and claimed, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. How did people respond to that last part? Well, some of them mocked, right? To think that there would be a resurrection from the dead. Outside of some Jews and the Christians, the only people in the ancient world to believe in a resurrection of the flesh were the Zoroastrians of Persia. A bodily resurrection was an absurd proposition worthy of contempt. Thus, the heart of the gospel, the death of the Son of God by crucifixion and his resurrection triggered a visceral response and rejection from most of the Gentile world. Though Jesus had come in the fullness of time, a moment when the world was in many ways primed for the spread of the gospel, several factors stood in the way of the gospel and Jesus gaining widespread acceptance. Christianity threatened to usurp 
the state religion, and it was seen as both treacherous and seditious. Christianity and its insistence that one reject all other gods and religions turned the stomach of a pluralistic society who saw its God as unnecessarily antagonistic. And the Christian gospel that centered on the death and resurrection of the Son of God only deepened their resistance to this young faith. So when Paul writes to the Romans and says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. It's quite a statement. It was Paul's earnest desire to visit the capital of the Gentile world to preach the gospel, but he was under no illusions. He knew that he was walking into the belly of the beast. And he also knew that his message faced seemingly insurmountable obstacles. But he would not allow the contempt most people had for his faith to deter him. On the contrary, he leaned in. He chose to trust in the power of God. Because he knew what had happened on Calvary that day. And he was willing to risk everything to proclaim the gospel in the capital of the Gentile world. Given the striking unpopularity of the Christian message, many historians have been led to believe that Christians only drew their members from among those who were easily deceived. Frederick Ingalls, a collaborator of Karl Marx, Frederick Ingalls argued that Christianity was originally a movement of oppressed people. From Ingalls' point of view, it it first appeared as the religion of slaves and emancipated slaves, of poor people deprived of all rights, of people subjugated or dispersed by Rome. Now, Ingalls had an agenda. We could easily dismiss Ingalls because of that agenda. He was a proponent of the working man's historical struggle against an entrenched elite, and his views were skewed by his bias. We could make that argument. But his view actually was the prevailing view of historians well into the 20th century. Edwin Goodenow, a respected professor from Yale, wrote this in the 1930s. Still more obvious an indication of the undesirability of Christianity in Roman eyes was the fact that its converts were drawn in an overwhelming majority from the lowest classes of society. Then, as now, the governing classes were apprehensive of a movement which brought into a closely knit and secret organization the servants and slaves of society. Half a century later, another Yale professor of history, Ramsey McMullen, writes this. The early church's teachings were offered most often to the unsophisticated or uneducated and by people of low standing in the community. Now, these sorts of views were formed by reading the works of the Greek philosopher Celsus. I think I called him a physician earlier, but he was actually a philosopher. Celsus had all kinds of terrible things to say about the Christian faith, but this one is uh, quite something. Celsus accused Christians of saying things like, let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near, for these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. 
These are the sorts of statements that led men like Ingalls and Goodenow and Mullen to conclude that the early Christians were drawing their members from the lowest parts of society. And that might seem true in light of what Paul says back in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, verse 26. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. The apostle seems to suggest that Christianity appealed to the lower classes of Roman society. And from statements like that, some have concluded that the wealthy and educated were virtually non-existent among first century disciples. But it's important to point out that Paul does not say there are not any. Rather, he says there are not many. And I think that that's an important distinction. Numbered among the disciples at Corinth was Erastus. Erastus was the treasurer of the city. This was a position of prestige and affluence in the Roman colony. Jesus revealed it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved. But he goes on to say that with God, things that are impossible become possible. After warning Timothy about the dangers of pursuing riches, Paul tells the evangelists to charge the rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Depicting Christianity as a movement of oppressed people, whose teachings were offered most often to the unsophisticated or uneducated and by people of low standing in the community, does not fit with the more complete reading of the New Testament. And the testimony of history agrees. In 57 AD, Tacitus accused Paponia Gracchina, which I can pronounce things like John does, Tacitus accused Paponia Gracchina, a woman of senatorial class, of practicing a, quote, foreign superstition. And it's widely believed that the foreign superstition she was practicing was Christianity. She was a member of the senatorial class. We know Achilles Glabrio and Flavians, two members of the Roman aristocracy, were professing Christians in the latter half of the first century. In a world where three-quarters of the population was illiterate, the language and style of early Christian writings implies they were written to a highly literate audience. These facts and others have led historians in the latter half of the 20th century to conclude that Christianity was, in its earliest days, more of a middle-class movement. Characterizing the early Christians as a band of simpletons and social outcasts who were easily duped into believing its claims just doesn't fit all the facts. So why did the pagans become Christians? Why did the pagans become Christians? Miracles influence the conversion of pagans. Consider the example of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says to the Thessalonians, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. A few verses later in verse 9, 
He tells the Thessalonians about these other congregations. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What had helped them make that change? Was it just simply convincing reasoning? This example shows us that it was not only the message of the gospel that turned pagans into Christians. It was the display of divine power. Believing in the miraculous was not difficult for a person living in the first century. In the writings of Herodotus and Livy, divine beings appear on Greek or Roman battlefields to help its heroes. In fact, it would be fair to say that belief in miracles in the first century was a default position. Not to believe in miracles would have made you seem more than odd, simply irrational, as it would have seemed irrational seriously to suppose that babies are brought by storks. It's worth noting that before Paul begins reasoning with the Lystrans, what happens? Well, he healed a lame man who had been crippled from his mother's womb. What made these people interested in what Paul had to say? The fact that they witnessed this miracle. And the most convincing display of miraculous power was the casting out of demons. In the Greek and Roman world, demons were malevolent spirits that were blamed for all evil occurrences. It was believed that demons could be manipulated through special spells, charms, and incantations. Since demons were less powerful than gods, folks would appeal to the divine in hopes that their sacrifices would gain the favor of the god or goddess and thereby give them protection from these hostile spirits. These beliefs placed Jesus and the gospel preached by his disciples and apostles in an advantageous position. For example, consider the account of Jesus casting the group of demons out of the man in the country of the Gadarenes. Mark and Luke offer far more vivid accounts of this particular encounter, far more extensive accounts than Matthew does. And this makes sense because this exorcism actually took place in Gentile territory. And Mark and Luke were two gospel accounts that were intended for a Gentile audience. So demonstrating Christ's absolute authority over not just one demon, but over a host of demons would have been powerful testimony to a Gentile listening to the gospel for the first time. Or consider the example of Paul in Ephesus. You might remember in Acts chapter 19, there were some Jewish exorcists that were imitating Paul by saying things like, saying things to people who were demon-possessed, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And their plan backfired on them. They tried this, and an evil spirit attacks them, scatters them naked and wounded. Luke tells us that word spread of this event. It sowed fear in the hearts of Jews and Gentiles alike, and it magnified the name of Jesus Christ. But what's really interesting is what happens next. In Acts chapter 19, verse 19, the physician goes on to add this detail. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. 
And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. When those who used charms and incantations to ward off evil spirits, when those people heard of a real display of power, what were they compelled to do? They were compelled to abandon their books completely, to burn them, to be rid of them. Yale historian Ramsey McMullen observed the manhandling of demons, humiliating them, making them howl, beg for mercy, tell their secrets, and depart in a hurry, served a purpose quite essential to the Christian definition of monotheism. It made physically visible the superiority of the Christian's patron power over all others. One and only one was God. And that power was not only over the demons, it was over the head of the demonic realm. With a few exceptions, Satan operated in the background in the Old Testament. He was, of course, in the garden with Adam and Eve. We know he was behind the calamities that befell Job. According to Second Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, Satan is the one who influenced David to take a sentence, census, pardon me, that was expressly against the will of God. Zechariah sees him in a vision opposing Joshua the high priest as he worked to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Otherwise, we have intimations of Satan in the Old Testament. We have no clear cut examples of him operating. But that changes when we get to the New Testament. When Jesus appears on the scene to begin his ministry, Scripture brings Satan out of the shadows. He tempts Jesus not long after his baptism. Jesus says Satan is responsible for stealing the gospel out of the hearts of some people. Jesus tells his disciples that he saw Satan fall from heaven, and he places Satan at the head of the demonic realm. A number of times in the book of John, Jesus alludes to his upcoming trial and crucifixion as Satan's attempt to thwart his mission. Scripture tells us that Satan influenced Judas to betray Jesus. And those are just a few examples from the gospel accounts. The epistles go on to reveal more about Satan, his schemes, and his intentions. But the thrust of the New Testament message is, though the power of Satan demands respect, Christians are positioned to defeat him. Paul told the Romans, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. When we put on the whole armor of God, we will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In our arsenal is the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. By his death on the cross, Jesus snatched Satan's greatest weapon, fear of death, from his arsenal. John says in 1 John 4, 4, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And John goes on to say in the series of visions that make up the book of Revelation, he goes on to see Satan and his angels cast from heaven by Michael and the heavenly host. He sees Satan bound for a thousand years, and he sees him cast into the lake of fire. In a highly superstitious age, when the demonic realm had been unchained to possess and torment people, the power to cast out demons would persuade many people to believe 
that Christ gave them victory over the forces of darkness. But there's one last thing I want to touch on. One last element that I think helped bring the pagan world to Jesus. Some of the pagan world to Jesus. And that is Christianity offered a moral and ethical system that was built on love. In this history of the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides records a first-hand account of a deadly plague that struck Athens in 431 B.C. He tells us that neither the science nor the religion of his day offered an effective way to deal with the plague. He talks about the doctors being completely incapable of treating these illnesses. Prayers were useless. Offerings were useless. And in the end, Thucydides report, many, many people were overcome by this sickness. He reports, though, something very interesting. He talks about how the sick were completely abandoned by the healthy. They were just left to die. He describes bodies filling the streets and temples, the sick staggering about on the streets, desperate for water. And he offers this comment. For the, ca- for the catastrophe was so overwhelming that men, not knowing what would happen next to them, became indifferent to every rule of religion or of law. No fear of God or law of men had a restraining influence. As for the gods, it seemed to be the same thing, whether one worshipped them or not, when one saw the good and the bad dying indiscriminately. Thucydides was by no means an isolated example in the ancient world. People routinely fled from plague and death. Galen, a physician during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, famously abandoned the city of Rome. He took up residence in a country home in Asia Minor and waited it out, while one-fourth to one-third of the population of the empire was wiped out by this plague. Nearly a century later, during a different plague, Dionysius of Alexandria watched as the pagan community pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. Christianity entered at a time when the state religion of Rome was struggling to keep hold of its people. One of the reasons why it struggled is some of the reasons that I've just been reading about. We know it was struggling because in 27 B.C., when Caesar Augustus came to the throne, he sat upon the greatest power on earth at that time, but there were already signs of internal decay. And he noticed that the decay of the ancient faith was great, and he believed that this decay of the ancient faith was responsible for the decay of the empire. So he set about to reform the ancient religion, and he was successful for a time. There was a bit of a revival of the Roman religion in his day. But that time of restoration was short-lived. Will Durant observed, the virile character that had been formed by arduous simplicities and a supporting faith relaxed in the, sun, relaxed in the sunshine of wealth and the freedom of unbelief. That's such an incredible statement. And it sounds so... Relevant to today. Men had now in the middle and upper classes the means to yield to temptation and only expediency to restrain them. Basically what he's saying is wealth had made them soft. 
and it gave them the ability to pursue their pleasures at will. Nothing was holding them back. There was no restraint. What Durant observes is as the prosperity of a nation increases, the nation gradually becomes disconnected with the core beliefs that led to its rise. And as the distance increases between a nation and its core beliefs, morality retreats and nations suffer decay. These examples from history reveal the harsh realities of living under a religious system without a strong moral compass. When Paul critiqued the Gentile world, one of the things he said is they were unloving. The word literally means lacking natural affection, like one might feel for a family member. And not even the Jews were immune to the dark tides of human nature. Jesus warned those living in Jerusalem in the days leading up to its destruction that because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. As sin increases, it has an impact on our love for our neighbor, for our fellow citizen. The trouble was the gods and the goddesses of Greece and Rome were neither admired nor did they offer anything inspiring to imitate. These were not examples to live up to. They were not aspirational in any way. There was no Moses that commanded his people to love Jehovah with all their heart, with all their soul, mind, and strength, and to love one's neighbor as as oneself. You didn't find that in paganism. There was no Solomon urging his readers to find purpose in fearing God and keeping his commandments. Paganism had no Hosea who described God's love for Israel with these tender words, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. Paganism was a cold, dark place. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark observes, the Christian teaching that God loves those who love him was alien to pagan beliefs. Equally alien to paganism was the notion that because God loves humanity, Christians cannot please God unless they love one another. Indeed, as God demonstrates his love through sacrifice, humans must demonstrate their love through sacrifice on behalf of one another. Moreover, such responsibilities were to be extended beyond bounds of family and tribe, indeed to all those who in every place call on the name of of the Lord Jesus. These were revolutionary ideas. And it was this love for one's neighbor that eventually began to win over the pagan world. Imagine if you can, you're a pagan living in Corinth in 260 A.D. A plague is spreading like wildfire. It's killing the infected within a couple of days. Fear spreads with equal speed and the city begins to empty as everyone flees for the countryside. Everyone, that is, except for some of the Christians. They stay behind to care for the sick. And some they nurse back to health only to die from infection themselves. But you see, as you watch them die, you see those Christians, they don't die with the despair that your neighbors do. Though their bodies waste away, they are content having laid down their life for others. They're fully persuaded that a place free from the suffering of this world awaits. You're a committed pagan. 
You've been critical of Christianity. You have resisted the gospel. But you cannot deny the amazing example of sacrificial love. And you find yourself compelled to say, look how they love one another. These are the sorts of stories that come to us from the second and third centuries in particular. There were people who were trying to live out the words of Jesus. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. These words, brethren, changed the world. These words changed the world. If you're here this evening and you are not a Christian, we invite you to consider what Jesus Christ has done for you. Perhaps right now you're harboring some doubts in your heart about the existence of God. Perhaps you've heard something this weekend that has persuaded you to rethink what you have thought about Christianity in the past. Maybe something has been said this weekend that has convicted you and you realize that you need to do something to make a change. I don't know where you're at right now, but I want to talk to you. Please know that the gospel is open to you, not just now, but any time. So long as this earth is spinning, so long as the church is present in this world, which it will be here until Jesus returns, there is hope and there is opportunity. So if you know that you need to turn your life around, if you know that you cannot live this way any longer, Jesus is holding out his hand. He wants to help you. He wants to help shoulder those burdens. He wants to wash your sins away with his blood in the waters of baptism. And he wants you to help. He wants to help you conquer that person within that resists the will of God. If we can help you obey the gospel this evening, later tonight, tomorrow morning, or anytime, talk to us. If you want to study, there are people here who would love to study with you. Whatever your need is, this is a great opportunity to let us know how we can help you as we stand and sing the number that Charles has selected.